we do appreciate everyone that's here today, and uh, and we're going to try and not belabor you here too long. Uh, I uh, have been a little under the weather battling this cold sinus crud that's been going on. And so uh, before the service started, I ran in the restroom to blow my nose, and so hopefully I have enough time to get through the message without you guys feeling the negative effects of my cold. Otherwise, it'll hear an echo or a drop of something hitting this microphone thing. And so we don't want that to happen. That sounds kind of gross, I know, but I just don't want you guys to think it's something weird going on. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and pray for our service, and then we'll get right at it. Lord, I thank you so much for this day. I thank you for uh, just the opportunity, the, the freedom that we have to come and and worship you, Lord, and the freedom that we have to come and read your word. Lord, I pray that you help us not to take those things for granted. I pray that this morning as we get into your text and the gospel of John, that you allow us to, to look at this passage through your eyes. Lord, that, that we maybe gain a new truth or maybe we're reminded of something that we've learned in the past. Lord, I, I know that... Uh, for me, this passage and the last few passages feel like they come at just the perfect time. A time when we can maybe find ourselves in the midst of a, a personal struggle. Maybe a time in which we look across the landscape of the country and the society that we live in. We just realize that there are a lot of things that aren't right. And the balance seems to be shifting. In the midst of all those things, Lord, that you, you promise us, and as we'll look at today, you promise us to turn our joy, or, or turn our sorrows into joy. And so this morning, I pray that, um, that we'll look at three words that we find in this passage, these three ideas of joy, of love, and of peace. Kind of three terms that you gave those disciples in their last moments together to help guide them and get them through the difficult days that they would encounter very, very shortly. So, Lord, I pray that you help us today to be able to claim those three words, those three promises in the context in which you gave them and apply them to our lives. It's in your son's beautiful, holy, and precious name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, open them up to John chapter uh, 16. John chapter 16, and we're going to try and tackle uh, verses 16 through the end of the chapter, verses uh, 33. Again, for those who, um, maybe it's your first time here, uh, maybe it's been a while, uh, the method that we, we teach here is um, uh, in the fashion of expository teaching. So we just go verse by verse through a book of the Bible. And, and for us, it's been the Gospel of John. We are quickly approaching what will be our one-year anniversary since we had our first service as a church, Redemption Hill Church. Uh, first week in October will be our our anniversary, and so when we look at this time frame, um, we took three or four weeks at the very beginning to to look at the Great Commission, about what that means to us personally. We took uh, three weeks off for Christmas. We took uh, we've kind of fast forwarded at Easter time in, in the Gospel of John. But aside from those four weeks at the beginning and those three weeks at Christmas time, we have tackled the Gospel of John verse by verse, and so we find ourselves. Today in John chapter 16, towards the end, um, 
I hope that you have enjoyed this journey. Those of you who have been here for a while, for some, maybe this is a new style. Maybe you're, you're kind of used to just kind of chasing a topic for a six or eight week period and then going to a new one. And those are nothing wrong with that. There may be times in which we do those things, but I am a big believer in looking at context, the context in which the scriptures were written. So as we look at something, we understand what's going on. And And I would certainly encourage you, even in your own Bible reading, we come to, to look at a verse and you're trying to figure out what that verse may mean. I would look at the, the five verses before it and the five verses after it to help give you some perspective on what the context of what that verse truly means. Um, the Bible, just like almost any other book, you can take something out of context, right? You can take a verse out of the context in which it was written and meant and make it sound like it means something different. Um, and so, this style of expository teaching going verse by verse helps protect us and guard us from straying too much off of the path. All right. It also allows us, I think, a perspective of what the disciples and the people were going through that we kind of lose out. And so just to kind of, we do this every week, just kind of where we were before, you know, kind of like the beginning of these TV shows that you watch, right? This is what happened last week or recently. So recapping it a little bit, John, um, Chapter 1 through John chapter 12 cover the first three and a half years of Jesus' ministry. Basically, it covers most of his ministry, three and a half years. And then when you're starting in John chapter 13 through the end of the Gospel of John, it covers just a matter of a few days. Okay, so the first 12 chapters, three and a half years. The last few chapters, 13 and on, just a few days. John chapter 13, we begin with... What, many theologians call the upper room discourse. So Jesus and the disciples are gathered together in the upper room. They have this last supper. They have this time where Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. In John chapter 13. Again, one of my most favorite stories, I think, of the ministry and the life of Jesus here on earth is this idea of Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. A a job that was regulated for the lowest servant of the home, of the house. That was, it was not, not the guests, you know, not, not, not even the person who owned the home, but the lowest, the lowest servant of the home. It was his job, his task to wash the feet of the disciples or the, the guests. When you remember, like for us today, that sounds different. Like if you invite me to your house and then you try and take my shoes off to wash my feet, it's going to get awkward really, really quick, won't it? Because I'm not a big fan of people really touching my feet. And if you saw my feet, you wouldn't want to touch them. I mean, it's just the way it is. I got, it's, it's different in our society today. Um, and truth be said, like the society we have today, like we have socks, we have covered shoes. We take regular showers, hopefully, unless you're kind of middle school age. Just saying. But, um, but, but right, so, so it's, times are different. You go fast forward, you, you go backwards to the disciples' days. You mean, you're talking like sandals, open shoes, you know, most of their transportation was by walking, dirt roads, not fun, right? And so Jesus does it, and he scrubs the feet of the disciples. One of the things that, I, that, that makes that story so impactful to me is this. We know that Jesus is God's son. Jesus knows what's about to occur. Later on, as we go through this discourse, he's just a, a mere moments away from identifying who the person is that's going to turn him in. And he's going to talk about Peter. Betraying him. 
Like he knows those things. But, but you, you realize that as he washes the feet, like he washed all their feet. Like he washes Judas's feet. The one that's already made the plans with the leaders. But he washes his feet. Like to me, that's incredible. Like I, I, I wouldn't even be able to look at the person, let alone get down there and start scrubbing his feet. But Jesus does. What an awesome lesson about humility. Selflessness. John chapter 14, one of my most favorite verses in scripture, John 14, 6. Jesus declares to the people, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so if you are ever caught in a conversation with somebody, uh, maybe someone who's Mormon, Jehovah's Witness, something like that, who, who will say that you know, Jesus is a good guy, but you know, he never claimed to be God. You can go straight to John 14, 6, because Jesus emphatically makes the claim, I am. Tying himself to the burning bush that Moses saw. I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one, no one, no one, no one, no one, no one, no one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus. Jesus made the, made the claim. So John 14, 6, he, he tries to clear all the muddy waters. You also have this time where, where they're, they're this last supper. Judas ends up leaving. And, and that's when Jesus is hunkering down. He's having those, these final moments. And in John 15, that we spent the last few weeks looking at, um, an awesome, awesome chapter. A, ch- a chapter of comfort. Where Jesus starts the first few verses in John chapter 15, making this illustration of him being the vine and us as believers being a branch. And more than likely, they've left the upper room. The end of John chapter 14, the final verse there, he says, arise, let's go. So more than likely, Jesus and the disciples have packed up. They're, they're leaving the upper room and they're going to the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, the Garden of Gethsemane is not recorded in the Gospel of John. But that's at the, the spot where, where we read about in the other Gospels where Jesus is, is praying. And it's such intense prayers that his sweat turns to blood. Okay, so they're marching towards the Garden of Gethsemane. And more likely on their way there, they come across this vineyard. And so as they cross this vineyard, Jesus uses it as a perfect illustration. He says, guys, listen, I'm, I'm the vine. You're the branches. And this went against a lot of their tradition because you go back to the Old Testament. It talks about the nation of Israel being the vine. And Jesus is a, a letting them know that, listen, originally you guys were the vine, but you guys messed up. You had your opportunity, but it withered away. But I'm the true vine, and you're the branch. And, and we talked about it in that. It's comforting for us as believers to realize that it's not our job to produce the fruit. Okay, I, again, I'm, I come from just outside Detroit. I don't know how to grow anything. I'm nothing. Like, we plant stuff almost every year, and almost every year it dies. I mean, I take the Darwinian approach to agriculture. That's why we don't have very many tomatoes, right? It just doesn't happen. So I, I can't speak to you as, um, uh, as one who knows much about agriculture. But he uses a perfect illustration. There's a branch, and the branch is what feeds all the substance, or the vine feeds all the substance to the branch, which ultimately grows the apple or the grape or the tomato or whatever it is. So you, you, you take that vine off of that branch, it's not going to grow anything anymore. You disconnect it, you snip it, it's done. Okay? The whole substance to grow that grape comes from the vine. And that's what Jesus says. Listen, I'm the vine. I'm the one that's going to help you grow the fruit. 
Just abide in me. Stay in me. And so we talked about that. We talked about this being the vine and the branch and us staying connected to that vine. After that, the next portion of Scripture in John 15 is this believer-to-believer relationship where where Jesus is telling those disciples, listen, um, you guys need to hold tight to these relationships. You need to love one another. Again, I remind you, um, one of my high school students when I was a youth pastor, after they graduated, they came back and they told the class, I asked them to come back and leave some final thoughts to the class. And I said, you know, what are some things that you can leave with these kids, the ones that you're leaving? You're off to college for the next group behind. And, and I remember um, Sarah Lane saying to that group, make your church friends be your best friends. Make your church friends be your best friends. What wise counsel that is. I would encourage us as adults to follow that same advice that Sarah gave middle school and high schoolers. Make your church friends be your best friends. And we see the reason why God, why Jesus is telling the disciples this. Because after it's the vine being connected to the branch, after you need to find good, solid, believing friends who are going to help encourage you, help you through these difficult times, we see at the very end of John chapter 15 where Jesus declares persecution is coming. They're going to kill me. If they're going to kill me, they're going to come after you. And so Jesus ends John chapter 15 with a promise of persecution. Now, nobody, nobody wants that, right? I mean, no, how, most of us are not going to sign up with, okay, give it to me. Bring it all on. That's what I want. But see, Jesus sets the stage. He starts with, I'm the vine, you're the branch. Stay connected to me. Find good, godly friends, people that will encourage you, that will help you. And so if you're connected to me, if you have good, godly friends in your life, as the tribulation comes, as the persecution comes, there's a source to help get you through it. So John chapter 15, I believe, is one of the most powerful chapters in almost all of Scripture. I would encourage you guys to read that on on a regular occurrence. John chapter 16, the first 12 verses that we talked about last week, talks about the Holy Spirit coming. The helper, the comforter. So we're going to pick up in John chapter 16, starting in verse 16. And Jesus is speaking. He says, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does, this, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. It's interesting now, you look at that passage here. So Jesus is talking with his disciples. They're, in a, they're all together. And he says, hey, guys, listen, you're about, I'm about to go. I'm about to leave. In a little while, you're not going to see me. But then a little while later, you'll see me again. And I love when you look at this idea. So, like, they're all together. Jesus makes a statement, right? And then it's almost like the guys get together. And, like, Jesus is here. They're all walking, and he's talking with them. And he says this thing. And all of a sudden, like, the rest of the guys, like, huddle up over here. And, like, okay, what is he talking about? What, I mean, I don't get this. Well, I mean, he, what do you mean? He's, Jesus is still there. Right? They're, they're trying to figure all this stuff out together, and Jesus is there. They're talking about Jesus rather than talking to Jesus. I don't know if you're like me, but that happens somewhat frequently. Things come in our life. We, we, need, we need help. We have maybe big decisions to make. 
we as Christians kind of cloak things in what we call God's will. And so then we go to our friend and say, listen, this is what's going on. This is a decision I need to make. I'm trying to figure out what God's will for my life is. And so we depend upon our friend to help us discover what God's will for our life is. Now listen, we need good godly friends. We talked about it in John chapter 15. We can use good godly counsel. That's scriptural. But we have to realize that our friends are not the Holy Spirit. Our friends are not God. Jesus. That as we seek them, we ought to be first seeking the Father. We ought to be going to Jesus first, trying to figure out what his will is. Yeah, maybe we need some sounding boards in life. That's fine. But don't rely on your friends to make God's will available in your life. Go to him. Don't talk about Jesus. Go to Jesus. Talk with him. Pray with him. And I just find it amazing, though. Jesus is, gives them, he's just kind of talking, and then all of a sudden, I can just kind of see them huddling behind him, saying, what in the world are you talking about? More of this. More of this. And again, remember, the context of all this stuff, Jesus knows what's about to happen. He's, he knows, like, the clock is ticking. Okay, all this stuff is going on. Judas, at this time, more than likely, they got the gang together. They're, they're probably in the midst of lighting the torches and marching to the Garden of Gethsemane. All of it is going down. It's a matter of minutes now. A, a, a few short hours at best. And so Jesus is saying this stuff, and, and they're utterly confused. In verse 19, it says, And Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is giving birth, uh, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take you for joy. No one will take your joy from you. In that day, will you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the father in my name, he will give you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. This passage here that we're going to go through and the verses still yet to come. Jesus knows the disciples' world is going to be rocked. And so he's going to give these disciples three promises to kind of hold on to. And the first one we see here is joy. He's going to give them joy. There's opportunity for them to claim joy. Now, the connection for joy, how we receive joy, we see there is through prayer. But asking in his name. See, when we ask in his name, it's a twofold process. See, we're going first to him with his authority. But then second, it has to conform to the nature of God. Well, what, that, what do we mean by that? It means that Jesus is not meant to be some genie in a bottle. This isn't Aladdin, where we find a, a, a little thing, and we rub it, and he pops out, does a little dance, and we get three wishes. 
That's not conforming to the nature of God. So when we ask things, we go to God. We're, Jesus is telling us to go to the Father. What this is a, and this is, we have to understand, this is, this is earth-shattering, world-changing statements. The okay, Old Testament, they didn't go to the Father. Okay, we had the tabernacle, right? And, and then the, the, once every so often, the high priest, one, one dude, one fella, could go into the Holy of Holies and meet God. That was it. That we, they had sacrifices and all this stuff. But, but the believers, those who believed, they had to put it all through the priests. They didn't have that connection. We talk about the, the Holy Spirit. In, in Acts, it will be received for everybody. But in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit just kind of came in, in, and left. It would show up to the prophets for a little while, maybe the kings, a few, a few people, but it was there for a little while and leave. It wasn't permanent. Or he wasn't permanent. And now Jesus said, and then when Jesus' day, Jesus became that plug where people would go to Jesus personally and they would want healing. Uh, they would want some direct revelation. They, they would want to hear his teaching. But Jesus is saying, listen, I'm leaving. I'm going. And because he leaves and because he goes, we have the ability, what we, we, we call the priesthood of the believers. It gives you and me Direct access to God. That's awesome. It's mind-blowing. And we have to understand that this is all being thrown at the disciples, and they, have no, they can't even comprehend all this stuff. In fact, we see in this passage that Jesus is, is conflicted because he doesn't want to keep revealing this stuff to the disciples because they can't understand it. This idea of joy, I think sometimes in our society, we, we mess up and we combine the idea of happiness and joy as if they're the same thing. Because you see, there is a difference between happiness and joy. We can illustrate it, and it's maybe not the, the best illustration, unfortunately. When we talk about love, there's the emotional side of love, right? There's the ooh goo, like gooey eye type love, like the writing the notes of someone in class, writing check yes or no, right? I mean, you guys remember that, right? And I guess you probably don't write notes anymore. You probably just Instagram it to somebody, right? So that the whole world can see if you get rejected or not. If you do that, guys, please just make sure it's a solid yes before you do it, okay? Right? You put little heart-shaped things on Instagram and all that, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? Like, that's the emotional, like, that's the sixth grade love that you think is going to last forever. Like, you finally found the man, the man of your dreams, right? And then Friday hits, <laughs> right? And before the weekend, you got to clean this thing up because the weekend's here and I got a new man that I got to find. Right, so we we confuse so, so like love today, like we we think this, like we go to the movies and watch these movies that are that our wives drag us to, right? This romantic comedies about how great love is, but it's all based around this emotional connection. And then the reality is, we get into real world, real life. We get married, and then we realize that. The emotion's not strong enough. 
we realize that that emotion will soon pass. And then it comes down to a choice, a decision. That's the way love is, right? Joy and happiness are similar, right? Joy's a decision. It's not this ooey-gooey, happy feeling that we always have. This is what becomes scary, though, because um, the world tells us something differently. The world's always trying to sell us something that will build happiness in our lives. And so we become this very consumer-driven society, right? Go, we buy, 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 hoping to fill this thing that whatever we buy is going to produce happiness in our life. Or whatever it is, maybe it's, it's um, if you're like me, um, you eat, you eat, you eat, thinking that's going to be what brings you happiness. Or we can fill in the blank, whatever it is. It could, be, it could be buying things. It could be any type of material things. It can be um, food. It can be exercise. It can be relationships, whatever it is. But we do these things. We try and fill the gap with happiness. And that's what the world tells us. And then a lot of times we come to church and then church says, no, no, no. Happiness isn't in these things. Happiness can't be found in yourself. It's only through God. But then you know what? Sometimes... Even the church tries to mimic what the world says. All right, we got this little video clip here. Um, it's not very long. It's, it's about 30, 40 seconds. And um, we're going to play it because uh, I think it illustrates this well because this is, this is a church setting. So, Zach, go ahead if you can hit it for us. Can you guys turn it up? See that? Um, and this isn't like a little country church. I mean, this is the, the largest church in America. I mean, some 30,000 people attending a church service in which the pastor's wife, and, and I believe in, in, in their context, she's one of the pastors, gets up there and says, listen, guys, um, happiness is following yourself. You don't come to church for God. You come to church for yourself. You know, whenever we try and pursue happiness to gain what we want, what we desire, we'll never be satisfied. Right? It doesn't matter. What, whatever it is you're trying to, to pursue, okay, if, if, you're happy, if you think your happiness will be found in a new home, mark my words, once you get in that new home, sometime in the future there's going to be things that will go wrong and it's no longer happiness. Right? When a new roof has to be put on the home, you're not happy. Right? Well, you think the brand new car is going to provide you all this happiness. It might be a great car. It's not a roll of cars. But 10 years down the road, it's going to be in a junkyard somewhere. Right? We buy all these clothes to stay in fashion, and then all of a sudden, the fashion changes, and they sit in the back of our closet. Our relationships. We, we think we'll find happiness in that one person. Guys, look at the statistics. How many marriages are surviving nowadays? 
And, it's, and I, the percentages between those who believe in God and those who don't believe in God aren't that much different when it comes to marriages. And I'm not trying to kick us in the face at all and say, listen, we're all evil people for wanting a nice home, a nice car, um, a, a good marriage. All, those, are, those are fine things. But if we believe those are what's going to bring our happiness, we're going to live a desperate, desperate life full of despair. Sometimes in our prayers, we find ourselves in a very difficult time, difficult situation, tribulation, persecution, whatever you want to call it. And we go to God and we we pray to God asking for help. We go to him. Again, if you're like me, most of the time, I'm asking God to change the circumstance. Saying, God, take this situation away. How often do we go to God asking him to not change the circumstance, but to change me? You know what's interesting? In this passage, when it talks about joy, it talks about sorrow, right? Does the Bible say that Jesus takes the sorrow away? Whatever that object is? No, Jesus transforms the sorrow into joy. He, he uses the illustration of childbirth. One that many of the women in this room can understand. And one that most of us men All of us men will never understand. We may have witnessed it. We may have seen a side of our spouse that we've never seen before. It's a perfect illustration, right? Because from what I've observed and what I hear, childbirth is painful. Right, ladies? It's not pretty. It's not something we look forward to like, yes. Here it comes, right? It's painful. And you go through all the pain, all the agony, all the perspiration, all the shouting and everything else that happens. And then there's this beautiful baby and you hold it. And magically, somehow, all that pain is removed. Right? I mean, because guys, if we think about it, listen, we all know if it was up to men to have babies, the world would be extinct with Adam. <laughs> he would have had one and been done. Would have been it. And we told his son stories that you wouldn't want to do it. Again. I mean, it just wouldn't have happened. Right? But, but you have this baby and you hold it. And then for some odd way, that pain is somewhat forgotten. And then you do it again and again. And if you're the Clements, you just keep doing it and doing it and doing it. (laughs) Right? Because that illustration, that pain, that agony, you had to go through it, right? I mean, the pain wasn't taken away. And again, Jesus is connecting the New Testament to the Old Testament. The fall of the sin, the fall of man. And he says, listen, there's sorrow. He didn't take the sorrow away. He didn't take the pain away in the childbirth. It was still there. Once the baby's there, that's what you know, that's what you hold, that's what you remember. 
And so when it comes to our own lives, when it comes to the persecution, the trials, the tribulations, more than likely, God's not going to just push that away and replace it with some big celebration. He's going to use that, whatever that situation, even as painful as it may be, to bring joy in your life. You go back in the Old Testament, go back in Genesis, in, in Genesis 45, 46, 47, in that area, when Joseph, we all remember Joseph, remember the boy with the coat of many colors, right? His brothers get jealous. They throw him in a pit and they, they sell him off into slavery. Okay, that's pretty rough, isn't it? You go from being like the favorite son into a ditch, into being sold off into slavery, you end up in Egypt. Like, that's not fun. No doubt Joseph's having prayers with God, confused, wanting to know what's going on. God didn't take that away, right? He stays in Egypt. And if that wasn't good enough, he, he gets sold into to Potiphar's house. So now he's a slave in the house of Potiphar. Potiphar's wife has the hots for him. Makes a move on, on Joseph, and Joseph runs away. And he, he does exactly what he should do. He does what's right, but yet he ends up in jail, in prison. Because of Potiphar's wife lies. He goes into prison. Not fun, not good, right? Didn't do anything wrong, did he? But he's there in prison. Not for a few hours, not for a few days, not for a few weeks, but for years. And through God's handiwork, series of majestic events, of Joseph reading and, and dreams, all that kind of stuff, Joseph ultimately becomes what we consider the prime minister of Egypt. Out of those trials, out of that tribulation, God prepares Joseph, uses Joseph, gets out of that bad situation, doesn't avoid any pain. He, Joseph goes through it. And then he gets the blessing, he gets the joy, not just for himself, not just for his family, but for the whole nation. Because Joseph's the one who gets out. He prepares the people for the upcoming famine. They get all the stuff prepared for it. The famine strikes. He helps Egypt out. His family comes in need. He helps the family out. He gets joy. He had to go through the hard times, didn't he? But he gets the joy. His family gets the joy. The nation gets the joy because of that tribulation. See, that's when Jesus talks about turning the sorrow into joy. He doesn't say, I'm going to remove all the sorrow. I'm not going to remove what's causing the sorrow, but I'm going to transform it. I'm going to transform that into something awesome, into something that will cause joy. Let's go down a little bit further here now. So verse 25 says, And I said these things to you in a figure, figures of speech. This is what I was talking about before. Jesus had been kind of talking. He had been using word pictures and illustrations. He says, The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. Verse 26 says, And in that day you will ask in my name, and I, will do, and I do not say to you that I... Hold up here. I'm sorry. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father... On your behalf. For the Father Himself loves you because you love me. And I believe that I have came from God. I came from the Father and the Father and, and have come into the world. And now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. So we see that in verse 27, this idea of love. Kind of goes back to John chapter 15. 
So he talks about, he talks about, starts out with joy, that he's going to take and transform our joy, or our sorrows into joy. He talks about love here, a love for the Father. And the, lover, and the Father loves you because you love me. We have to understand, like, this kind of love is a selfless love, not a selfish love. I think one of the great struggles we all have, I mean, and, and, and guys, when I say we all have it, we all struggle with selfishness. I will tell you this, a selfish spirit is a root of the devil. Think about this. Whatever our selfishness is, when we become selfish, when it comes to love, there's no way we can love and be selfish. It's impossible. We can't love others and be selfish. What we're saying to God is, I don't trust you enough. I don't trust you enough to do what I need, so I'm going to do it for myself. I'm going to take care of myself. Maybe some scraps left over for those around me in need, but I'm going to take care of myself first because I'm not quite sure somebody else is going to reciprocate that love to me. You know, we may not say it, Unspokenly, we're saying, and that may go for you too, God. Now listen, I think we need, I believe, I know we need to be good stewards of what God gives us. I don't think we need to live a reckless life. Going back to the Jesus washing the feet of the disciples, that sense of humility and love, even to those who hated him, is the same kind of love that Jesus is talking about here. We need to get rid of this selfishness. We need to beg, plead with God that he removes all all fingerprints of selfishness in our lives. Because all it is, is it's Satan getting involved. Satan sending signals in you saying, listen, I'm not so sure. You better take care of yourself. Just in case, you better take care of yourself in case nobody else does. You better take care of yourself because God may not. That person you're trying to help may not. He, He may not even appreciate what you're doing for him. Verse 29 says, and his disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that, that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. So the disciples think the lights turned on. So all this time Jesus has been talking, the whole upper room discourse, they've been scratching their heads. Now suddenly they go and they're like, Oh, now I get it. And I loved like Jesus must have just been tickled with this. Jesus said, answer them. Do you now believe? Notice there's a question mark there. And he follows that up with a prediction. He says, behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. When you will be scattered. Each to his own home. And will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. If I were you, I'd underline that last verse in John chapter 16. Jesus says, I've said these, this is Jesus speaking, I've said these things to you. That in me, you have, you may have peace. 
thing that we're all searching for, that void we're all trying to fill right there. We may have peace in him. In the world, you will have tribulation, persecution, troubles. We're going to have those things, but I love that promise at the end. Jesus always comes up. He'll have a prediction, but he always comes with a promise. He says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus says right there, like, we have the ability, we have the opportunity to find peace. For most of us, that peace is unsteady. For many of us, we lack joy. And our love can be somewhat uncertain. The way we battle through those things is through faith. That's it. The only way we can have true joy, the only way we can have true love, the only way we can have true peace is through faith. An absolute faith in Jesus Christ that he's sovereign enough that no matter what comes into our life, good or bad, easy or hard, no matter what it is, we understand and we believe that he's sovereign That he is over and controlling it. That he is more powerful than any struggle that we will go through. That is it. Because you wipe away faith. You You take faith out of the equation. Your joy will be like the happiness that Miss Osteen tried to explain to us. It'll be a void that you'll spend the whole your your whole life trying to fill. Your love will always be broken because the objects you're trying to love will always fail you. And because of the lack of joy, because of the uncertainty of love, you'll have an unsteady peace. But if we place all of this into the hands of Jesus, understanding this, guys, I told you two, three weeks ago, Nobody wants to get up here in front of people and say, listen, tough times are ahead of us. Bad things are going to happen in your life. Like that's not, we all want to leave with warm, fuzzy feelings. We all want to come to church and be uplifted. And who wants to know, who wants to come to church and say, you're going to get kicked in the mouth. It's going to happen. And they're going to laugh at you when it happens. Nobody wants that. But Jesus promises that. And I'm going to be pretty blunt with us. This morning. Like if we're not getting kicked in the teeth a little bit. There's a reason why. The reality is it's probably because we're not close enough to God. And we're getting too close to the world around us. Because Jesus promised us. The world is going to hate you. I'm not trying to get all cultish like like we're going to go do something crazy. But what I'm saying is the world loves darkness and not light. It's the facts. We see it all throughout the Gospel of John. He says it time after time after time. Tribulation is coming. Hard times are in our lives. And guys, I'm not talking about like the end days. I'm talking about tomorrow, Monday morning at work. I mean, I'm talking about you going and finally getting enough courage to share your faith with the person who works next to you 
And they start to give you a hard time about it. Now, I'm talking to you that, that, that maybe in, in your, your business looks like it's about to crumble and fail. And you're doing everything right. Don't forget about Joseph. He did everything right. It still failed. Like, if our life is always easy, it's not a good sign. Because Jesus promised, if you love me, if you follow me, they're going to do exactly what they did to me to you. But what's so exciting about this, guys, what allows us to leave, even when we hear those tough words, even when we hear the stuff that we don't want to hear, what gives us the ability to leave here with a warm, fuzzy feeling is this. Jesus overtook the world. Jesus overcame the world. He bore all the sin on his shoulders. He hung on a cross for us and he died he took the mocking. He took the persecution. He took the laughing, the spitting. He took all of that. Died. And there was a celebration after his death. Just like he predicted there. But Jesus tells us, the world's celebration, let them have their day. Because that's all they got. That's all they'll have. I made the statement a few weeks ago about persecution. We had to understand as believers is this. Here on earth, for those who believe in Jesus Christ and for those who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, let's be very clearly, our life on earth is as close to hell as we'll ever get. It's as close as we're ever going to get. But for those who do not believe in God, For those who reject Jesus Christ, you need to understand this. Life on earth is as close to heaven as you'll ever get. This is it. This is the, your best days are the ones that you'll have here. That's it. Like, I believe that we need to carry with great passion what Jesus is telling his disciples these last few moments together. Like, this is it, guys. It's time we got to go. you got to do. Remember, tough times are coming, but I overcame it all for you. I'm going to give you the strength. I'm going to give you the joy. I'm going to give you the love. It's going to be hard. It's going to be tough. I want to encourage us as believers, and this is not to try and pipe you guys up to increase our offerings, but I want you guys to contemplate something this morning. And maybe for the next few days. What are we passionately pursuing? Are we in our lives passionately trying to bring heaven here to earth? Or are we trying to take those around us to heaven? I mean, are we trying to accumulate all the stuff we need to, whatever it is, whatever those things is that we think that will provide our joy? Are we passionately pursuing those? Are we passionately pursuing souls that are going to spend eternity somewhere? Remember those disciples that were following Jesus? We look at them, they're confused. And sometimes in our minds, we're like, how in the world can you be confused? You were with this man for three and a half years. 
How do you not understand what he's saying? You, he was there with you. You ate breakfast, lunch, and dinner with him. You slept in the sleeping bag next to him. How could you not understand this stuff? We have to understand, though, every story that we read to us, we, we read the story of Jesus washing the feet ten times. When it occurred that time, that was the first time it occurred. It's all live to the disciples. We have the privilege of knowing the end of the story. They didn't. I appreciate that because it makes it that much more real to us. But realize those disciples give up everything to follow Jesus Christ. Everything. 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 Relationships. Friendships. Family. Businesses. Everything. And I promise you this. Absolutely this. You stand right now. One day when you stand in heaven next to them and you ask them face to face, do you regret it? I almost will, great certainty will say they will tell you that they regret they didn't give up enough. What are we passionately going to pursue in the time that God gives us here on earth? What is it? I hope and I pray, and this is something I've been struggling with, folks. It's not just me preaching to you. This is, this is Chad and Jesus time. I hope that I'm passionately pursuing him above everything at all costs. I hope when I stand before Jesus, I hope, I hope when I get there, I've got regrets in life already. So I can't say that there'll be no regrets. But I hope and pray when that time comes, when I stand before Jesus Christ, he'll look at me and smile. Say, he might say, it took you a little bit, but you finally got it. Because all the stuff we can wrestle with down here on earth, listen, we might live to be 100 years old. But you guys realize... A hundred years is not one millisecond in heaven, in eternity. It's not one blink of an eye. So let's pursue that rather than this. Let's pray.